Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast, Richard Lane on Friday, December the 12th. And today is Universal Health Coverage Day. This is the first time this date has been marked and I'm delighted to be joined to discuss Universal Health Coverage, which is picked up very much in the latest issue of the Lancet with my colleague Selena Lowe, who is based in our Beijing office. Come in, Selena. Hello. Good morning, Richard. Great to speak to you and I hope everyone can hear the line okay. We've tried Skype, but it didn't quite work. So we're, we're, on, <laughs> we're on the cell phone. But Selena, Universal Health Coverage Day, I mean, Universal Health Coverage is kind of one of the buzzwords in global health. It has been for a few years. And, and today is actually UHC Day. What does it mean? According to the World Health Report 2010 definition, uh, universal health coverage means that all people who need quality essential health services receive them without enduring financial hardship. And what the report defines as essential health services is in fact prevention, promotion, treatment, rehabilitation and palliation. Universal health coverage is at one level simple and at another level complex. It can mean different things to different people, is that right? we also um, emphasise in the editorial. In the many uh, discussions at um, country level and in terms of their planning with governments to uh, reach universal health coverage, a lot of the discussions are very much and rightly so around financial risk protection. And by that, um, uh, they usually mean that people are protected against the risks of healthcare costs. Um, including catastrophic costs, and hoping that um, uh, by further coverage it can lead to full 100% coverage. But in fact, um, also defined in the report and by WHO, it should also mean um, for everyone uh, approachable, compassionate care by medics, accessible and affordable services, and uh, user-friendliness of services, and most importantly, quality of care, um, however that is defined. I spoke to um, Professor Vivian Lin um, for the editorial, she says that many countries uh, look at UHC like a journey or an aspiration, but she thinks, uh, says that it is also a strategy. Even further, some such as the community argue it as a right. So it does indeed mean different things to different people, but overall, the angle that um, we've taken in the editorial is that we really should have um, people at the centre of this discussion for now and for the immediate future as we go into a new era with not MDGs, but SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goal, to look at how we can keep people very much front and centre of this discussion in every way. Glad you mentioned, of course, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, because they're going to be, the, the, they are the, another new buzzword. We've been talking about MDGs for 15 years or so. Sustainable development presumably must mean universal health, health coverage. So is UHC part of the overall SDG agenda? You know, has been identified as one component of goal three of the sustainable development goals. It's to ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. This proposal that the Open Working Group have put forward with some 17 SDG targets is uh, due for final negotiation next September 2015. In the um, editorial, however, we argue that although goal three is labelled as health, just by taking a couple of steps back, you can see with all 17 of the targets that all of them impact health or that um, health and populations impact them. And so uh, what becomes a question, uh, I think, from the scientific and medical community is how they can contribute to that evidence base to eventually measure this and produce indicators for this and how do we do that. One commission that is coming out next year um, for the Lancet is a really exciting commission the Lancet Commission on Planetary Health, 
and it is hoped that uh, this um, commission can address some of these themes in terms of the gaps in the evidence base. For example, the links between the oceans and health and the links between urbanisation and health. The more you start thinking about the detail, the more difficult I guess it becomes because presumably there are so many different models of health system. There are so many different types of country, rich, low, middle income, low income countries. There's so many different ways of achieving universal health coverage. Presumably there are potentially plenty of barriers on, along the way determined by the, the type of health system or the type of political system that's underpinning it. Yes, and um, for each country it's going to be I guess rightly so, a different journey. That is why we believe that um, the um, right to health is central to universal health coverage. I guess the notion of um, accountability, if that can be built, or a mechanism of accountability can be built into UHC discussions from the very beginning, would be a good start. Often um, the right to health is spoken of as something that can be progressively realised. And some speak of UHC also in these terms, which... I think it's fair enough. I guess the question that um, we could pose is uh, where is this balance? And the right to health perhaps is a framework to look at where that balance could be. So, for example, um, between waiting for that progressive realisation and letting certain groups um, fall through the net for now, um, a case in point is hepatitis C patients without access to appropriate treatment or care, either because the government hasn't mandated that it's important in national planning or that the drugs are too expensive. For example, MDRTB patients in prisons. But also it goes um, to diseases such as rare paediatric diseases and neglected diseases, which are also pertinent to developed contexts too. So universal is never um, at one point in the road going to be exhaustive, but it's important not to give up on that. And um, we believe that using the right to health is actually a way to keep everyone in that discussion. Also, uh, part of this is the uh, role of the private sector. And although private sector involvement should not be incompatible with the right to health, the question is, again, balance. Where um, the private sector can fill gaps well that the public sector cannot for the moment can actually allow some populations um, who wouldn't otherwise have access to health um, services do so. The problem is that in many occasions, the private sector still equates with profit-making and while that is fine, um, sometimes the most marginalised groups are not the ones who are making profit. It's been very well documented and um, campaigned for. There have been some very obstructive mechanisms in terms of pricing of diagnostics and drugs that have meant that um, the right to health or whatever you prefer to call one's inherent need for good health hasn't been met for a number of populations worldwide. So um, having an accountability mechanism in this and um, putting right to health at least gives space for this discussion. It's cliched that as um, putting people first might might seem, I guess, for some. You mentioned quality. Just just re-emphasise that because, as ever, when it comes down to politicians and looking at things at a macro level, it's very easy just to chase a quantitative target, isn't it? But I think a quality of care needs to be emphasised. Yes, definitely. Quality, as uh, the editorial points out, doesn't mean... Um, as it somehow superficially translated, shiny new facilities, which you can see, but um, good prescribing, safe medicines, approachable care and services. And moreover, services which are kept highly regarded by the users. And this is only um, really possible when the patients themselves are part of the evaluation and sometimes even the implementation. I think um, involving uh, the patients and um, users in um, the assessment of quality is, is very important. And some uh, countries have actually gone that far. 
for example, in Australia, um, the um, Victorian um, Health Advisory um, Service um, have a role in advising health, the health health service in terms of um, quality and user friendliness, etc. That's just one example, but there are many, many uh, worldwide. With some um, developing countries and others starting to have these discussions now, it, it would be important that these sort of uh, models are looked at. A couple of final thoughts. Equity, of course, is central to this. And equity, again, is a, is a very important word that can be easy at one level and complex to do at another because equity issues will change because economic situations are going to change, aren't they, over the next few years? Definitely. Many experts say with economic development in equity increases in countries, the challenge is that at every step and at every sort of platform in conversation about UHC within the new era of SDGs, we have to keep thinking of those most in need. And how do you define that, whether it's economically the last quarter or the bottom billion? But also, if you take the sort of marginalised definition, the floating groups, the migrants, and those who we haven't yet defined in health in a way that we could have national plans for them, such as transgender populations, it's important to think of how to meet their health needs. The immediate future, we do know what it holds, and that is we have to deal with the unfinished MDGs. The SDGs will need uh, new evidence to build on vis-a-vis -vis health, and that no matter um, what happens, we're always going to have conflicts and outbreaks. The angle this editorial takes is that only conversations with the users and providers of services in the community will be able to pick up early enough to act on all of these issues. A final thought, and again, it's at the heart of the, uh, the editorial we've written about universal health coverage. Again, it's worth restating, and it may sound a bit cliche, but it's important. People, putting people at the heart of universal health coverage, because it's not about statistics, it's about the health. Yes, it's about the health of populations, it's about the health of the world, but that's made up of the health of people, isn't it? You're right. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely obvious. Uh, no one in their right mind would probably disagree with the statement that people have to be the centre of which see. But then, again, it sometimes isn't obvious because um, when you attend meetings um, at national level in UHC or listen or even read documentation coming out of the SDGs, you really wonder where are the people who all of this is about. There are probably a few areas where um, we think that people need to be more visible and um, centrally put forward from the outset of any discussion. The first is in policy, and that's where the accountability mechanism comes in. The second is in uh, implementation and quality, so um, all of the evaluation and services involving people in that conversation there. But lastly, and really importantly, I think it's in research and design for our future. So no matter how well-intended or well-worked or clever any group is, no one can design from the outset a perfect UHC national plan, particularly going into a newly defined framework with SDGs. It's um, really important to keep that flexibility for people to have those conversations and to um, bring up the um, topics and problems that are important to them as we move through the next few generations. Great to be talking about universal health coverage on Universal Health Coverage Day, uh, which is today, the day we're posting this podcast, Friday, December the 12th. But in the meantime, Selena Lowe on the line. It's our first podcast with our Beijing office, actually. It's really exciting. We have a, a Beijing really? office at the Lancet, yeah, and... And so it's terrific uh, to be speaking to you. Thanks for talking to us on the podcast. Thanks very much. Have a lovely day, Richard.